This week, we find ourselves at the shoals upon which many Bible reading plans have run aground. Last week, we saw lists of kings that were defeated under Joshua, but this week we shift gears, and for the next eight chapters, we hear about the various parts of the land allotted. Even for those who have been in Israel, this is not a particularly exciting type of text. In fact, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, at one point includes 11 cities that the scribes who copied the Hebrew Bible apparently forgot at one point. So even ancient Hebrew scribes uh, in in the first millennia uh, AD apparently were not enthralled with these texts. The fact of the matter is very few of us choose to read land surveys just for fun. But if the land survey you're reading is about land that's yours, or it's about land that perhaps is your ancestral homeland, then you do have some interest in it. And so although this text does not strike the modern Christian as immediately exciting, we need to imaginatively identify with the ancient Israelite for whom there would be much interest reading about how their tribe and their clan received its ancestral homeland. For the next couple weeks, uh, although I've greatly appreciated hearing other people read the text and I plan to continue doing that, for the next couple weeks, I felt that I ought to read the text myself since it is full of all sorts of uh, foreign place names. Uh, And as you'll see in a moment here, I'm sure that I will stumble on some of these myself, but I certainly didn't want to ask other people to try and make their way through these. Let's read now together Joshua 13, and I'm going to pause at a few points to make a few comments. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and there remains yet very much land to possess. This is the land that remains, all the regions of the Philistines and all those of the Geshurites, from the Shihor which is east of Egypt, northward to the boundary of Ekron. It is counted as Canaanite. There are five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron, and those of the Avim. In the south, all the land of the Canaanites, and Merah, that belongs to the Sidonians, to Aphek, and the boundary of the Amorites, and to the land of the Gebelites, and all Lebanon towards the sunrise, from Baal Gad below Mount Hermon, to Labo Hamath, all the inhabitants of the hill country, from Lebanon to Misrapot Mayim, even all the Sidonians, I myself will drive them out before the people of Israel. Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance, as I have commanded you. Now, therefore, divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and the half tribe of Manasseh. We notice in this text some echoes of Joshua chapter 1. Recall in Joshua chapter 1, Now Moses was dead, and the Lord said to Joshua, Behold, Moses, my servant, is dead. Similarly, the Lord addresses Moses here and indicates that there is a shift in focus of what Joshua's mission is to be. And yet the Lord warns Joshua there's much land that remains. The first part he identifies this region of the Philistines and the Geshurites is in the south, and on the coastal plains, so sort of south of Judah and over towards the west along the coast of the Mediterranean. But then there's also a large region up in the north, uh, Lebanon towards the sunrise in the east, and Baal uh, Gad below Mount Hermon up in the north. 
So it's saying even though Israel has taken the central hill land, there still remains large portions of land in the south and in the north that have not yet been conquered. Beginning again in verse 8. With the other half of the tribe of Manasseh, the Reubenites and the Gadites received their inheritance, which Moses gave them, beyond the Jordan eastward, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them, from Aurora, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, and the city that is in the middle of the valley, and all the tableland of Medaba as far as Debon, and all the cities of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, as far as the boundary of the Ammonites and Gilead, and the region of the Geshurites, and Maacathites, and all Mount Hermon, and all Bashan, to Salica, and all the kingdom of Og and Bashan, who reigned in Ashtarod and in Edre. He alone was left of the remnants of the Rephaim. These Moses had struck and driven out. Yet the people of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites or the Maacathites, but Geshur and Maacath dwell in the midst of Israel. To this day. Here we see a description uh, picking up the two and a half tribes in the east, and it's a description. Uh, uh, Joshua is told to divide the land in verse 7 for the nine and a half tribes, and that reminder of the half tribe of Manasseh, the text here picks up what happened to the other half tribe. Well, it's over on the east side of the Jordan River with the Reubenites and the Gadites, and here in these verses we get a geographical description of the land. Note in verse 13 that there is a bit of a foreshadowing. Yet the people of Israel did not drive out some of the people. It's a foreshadowing of the trouble that's going to happen in the book of Judges and even later in the book of Joshua. Beginning again in verse 14. To the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave no inheritance. The offerings by fire to the Lord God of Israel are their inheritance, as he said to them. And Moses gave an inheritance to the tribe of the people of Reuben, according to their clans. So their territory was from Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and the city that is in the middle of the valley, and all the tableland by Medaba, with Heshbon and all its cities that are in the tableland, Debon and Bamot Baal and Bet Baal Meon and Jahaz and Kedemot and Meth Aath and Kiriathayim and Sibma and Zareth Shahar on the hill of the valley, and Bet Peor and all the slopes of Pisgah, and Bet Jeshemot, that is, all the cities of the tableland, and all the kingdoms of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, whom Moses defeated with the leaders of Midian, Evi, and Rechem, and Zur, and Hur, and Reba, the princes of Sihon who lived in the land. Uh, Balaam also, the son of Beor, the one who practiced divination, was killed with the sword by the people of Israel among the rest of the slain. And the border of the people of Reuben was the Jordan as a boundary. This was the inheritance of the people of Reuben according to their clans with the, their cities and villages. The description of the land given to each tribe begins with a note that Levi received no land in the east. And in fact, our chapter will end with the same note. The land given to Reuben is described first geographically, from the Arnon Valley uh, along the Jordan River up north to Heshbon, and then a number of the cities that are included in their territory are listed. And it should be noted that these lists of cities we get in the next eight chapters seem as if they may have been updated over time as the place names of different cities were changed. 
In verse 24, then, we hear the giving of the land to Gad. Moses gave an inheritance also to the tribe of Gad, to the people of Gad, according to their clans. Their territory was Jazir, and all their cities of Gilead, and half the land of the Ammonites to Aror, which is east of Rabbah, and from Heshbon to Ramoth, Mizpah, and Betanim, and from the Mahanaim to the territory of Debir, and in the valley of Bet-Haram and Bet-Nimrah, Sukkoth and Zaphon, and the rest of the kingdom of Sihon, king of Heshbon, having the Jordan as a boundary to the lower end of the Sea of Kinnereth, eastward beyond the Jordan. This is the inheritance of the people of Gad, according to, the according to their clans, with their cities and villages. Again, we hear both geograph uh, here, uh, primarily geographic, and then reference to the region that was formerly possessed by the king of Sihon. Note that Gad's territory goes from the uh, Heshbon in the south, and a piece of it at least stretches up to the Sea of Kinnereth, which is uh, uh, the old name for the Sea of Galilee. Verse 29, And Moses gave an inheritance to the half-tribe of Manasseh. It was allotted to the half-tribe of the people of Manasseh according to their clans. Their region extended from Mahanaim through all Bashan, the whole, king, the whole kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, and all the towns of Jair, which are in Bashan, sixty cities, and half Gilead, and Ashtarot, and Edre, the cities of the kingdom of Og in Bashan. These were allotted to the people of Machir, the son of Manasseh, for the half of the people of Machir, according to their clans. These are the inheritances that Moses distributed in the plains of Moab, beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho. But to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance, just as he said to them. Here we hear about the half-tribe of Manasseh receiving land up north of Gad. And these towns of uh, Jer may refer to the judge in the book of Judges who has this same name and whose sons ruled 30 villages. And notice it ends again with a comment on the tribe of Levi receiving no land. Well, what do we make of a text like this? I want to draw your attention to three themes in this passage. Three themes. The first theme is this. God calls his people to live by faith. God calls his people to live by faith. Our text begins by noting that Joshua was old and advanced in years. The narrator tells us this using two different phrases. He's old and he's advanced in years. And then the Lord speaks directly to Joshua saying the exact same thing. Look, Joshua, you're old and advanced in years. Now, is God just criticizing Joshua or, or uh, pointing out that he's old, making him feel bad? Certainly not. Rather, the Lord is, is telling Joshua, look, you're at a point where it's time for you to transition from the work you have been doing to a different sort of work. This all echoes back to Joshua chapter 1. In Joshua chapter 1, Moses has, had died, and so there's another transition. And when Moses died, Joshua was told that you will take these people into the land, that I will give you this land, and that you will cause them to possess it. And so we're shifting gears from entering into the land and taking it to now possessing it. This chapter, chapter 13, marks a transition from conquest to colonizing, from defeating enemy kings and kingdoms 
to dividing up their land and giving it to the different tribes, from subduing their enemies to settling their territory. But God warns Joshua, there is yet much land to possess. So allotting the land here in Joshua chapter 13, uh, and, and moving forward in these following chapters, allotting the land now is like being given the title to some land in Alaska, sight unseen. You can imagine someone giving you a title and saying, you now own 40 acres up in Alaska, but you've got to travel up there and see it yourself. You've got to homestead it if you want to own it. Being given this title is an encouragement to the people to take initiative. If someone gave me a title to 40 acres up in Alaska, I'd go up to Alaska and check out these 40 acres and see what I could do with it. And those eager in Israel to possess their land are going to spur others on. They're going to say, come help us take our land and we'll help you take your land. Let's work together and get this done. But it is an act of faith. God calls his people to live by faith. He says, here's the title. You possess it. And yet there's still other people living there. And God says emphatically, I myself will drive them out before you. I will do the work. And yet Israel is called to live on by faith, depending on God to keep his promises, to driving these people out before them. Notice that living by faith here means adapting to new situations. Moses' death, uh, Moses led people, the people of Israel right up to his death. At the book of Deuteronomy, at the very end of his life, he's still instructing the people. Joshua is told here in his old age to change what he's doing, to change from uh, subduing to settling. Uh, and then Caleb, as we're going to see next week, keeps working right up uh, past this. He says, I'm ready to go. Give me my land so I may go take it. Now, if we put these three together, Moses, Joshua, and Caleb, we'd say, there's no hard and fast rule for when you're supposed to retire or something along these lines. But what we do see is that there's wisdom in knowing how to live faithfully at different points in your life. Joshua heeds God's word and he recognizes that at this point in his life, his task is no longer to subdue the enemies, but to settle his people. And there's going to be a shift then in leadership in this new situation. And so all of Israel must live by faith, adapting to this new situation. Now, instead of Joshua leading the people, it's clan leaders leading their clan to take over different tribes or different areas. We also note in this text that we live by faith in different contexts. It's interesting to note as we read through these chapters that different tribes and clans are given vastly different lands. Some are settled in the high, uh, uh, high plains that we're reading about here in this chapter, uh, the high plains that are best for grazing cattle and sheep, and so they're largely herdsmen and shepherds. Others are settled down in the valleys where they have uh, river valleys, where they have irrigation possibilities uh, and rich soil. There's people in the hill country. There's people on the coastal plains. There's people down even in the edges of the wilderness. And so we recognize that all Israel is called to live by faith, and yet they're called to live by faith in vastly different contexts. And in fact, some people are called to take land where the Philistines still live, and the Philistines have their chariots that they can use on the coastal plains. And other people are called to live up in the hill country and to take land that's largely already conquered. And so living by faith looks different in different contexts. Now, we too, in a sense, live by faith. We live in the in-between times. 
Ephesians chapter 1 says that those, uh, this is beginning at verse 12, or 13, that when you heard, as we already heard this morning, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in Christ, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And he's the guarantee of our inheritance. We're given a guarantee that we do have an inheritance, but we have the guarantee until we acquire possession of it. We're in between. We have not yet possessed the inheritance which we are promised. And like Israel, we have to live by faith, trusting on God's promises in between. Like Israel, there's an ongoing struggle of the life of faith as we work to uh, dispossess not people, but sins and destructive patterns of behavior from our own lives. Like Israel, each of us finds ourselves being called to live by faith in vastly different situations. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, makes an interesting comment a lot about the different contexts in which we find ourselves living by faith. He, contact, he comments, uh, human beings judge one another by their external actions. God judges them by their moral choices. When a neurotic who has a pathological horror of a cat forces himself to pick up a cat for some good reason, it's quite possible that in God's eyes he has shown more courage than a healthy man may have shown in winning the VC. When a man who has been perverted from his youth and taught that cruelty is the right thing does some tiny little kindness or refrains from some cruelty he might have committed and thereby perhaps risks being sneered at by his companions, he may, in God's eyes, be doing more than you and I would do if we gave up life itself for a friend. It's interesting to think about it. From God's perspective, he sees the details of the different contexts that we each find ourselves in as we live out the life of faith. And that looks different for me and for you. A major victory for you might look different than a victory for me. But we're all called to live by faith, trusting God's promises. At, uh, from verses 8 through 33, we turn then from Joshua dividing and being instructed to divide the land and give the, the uh, 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 different territories to the nine and a half tribes back to Moses dividing the land. Again, this emphasizes the unity of the tribes, that the tribes on the east and the tribes on the west are one. Again, it connects Joshua's leadership back with Moses's. Joshua's leadership is a continuation of Moses's mystery. And this demonstrates the legitimacy of Joshua's division of the land. He's continuing what Moses was doing. But, and this is what I want to focus on here, these verses are also an encouragement, a reminder, and here's the second truth of this passage, the second theme I want to focus on, a reminder that God provides what he promises. God provides what he promises. God is reliable. He's given titles to these lots of land that the people have not yet seen. And he's called them to live by faith, to go to those lands and to take possession of them. But here we see, looking back at what happened on the east, that God is good for it, for what he promised. He has a reliable track record. He's promised to drive out the people before Israel. And we see, looking back at these verses, reflecting on the eastern tribes, that this is true. Under Moses, Israel defeated Sihon and Og, these kings in the east. Under Moses, even the diviner Balaam is no match for Israel if God fights on their side. 
In Joshua's day, God's people looked back at God's track record over 40 years. They looked back to God defeating Sihon and Og under Moses' leadership. They looked back to God's provision in the wilderness. They looked back even to God's deliverance from the Exodus. And surely some of the Israelites, at least, would remember back to the promises given to Abraham. So they're maybe even looking back 440 years. But friends, how much longer of a track record do you and I have? We're not just looking back to God's faithfulness last year or even 40 years ago. We, we are much further on in the story that God is telling in the world. And so we have much more of a track record of God's faithfulness to his promises to look back on. Even this Pentecost Sunday, we are celebrating that the promised helper, the Holy Spirit, God's own spirit that he promised to give to his people has been given, that God has kept his promises, because what God promises, he provides. God's track record with his people is 3,000 years long and more, or 3,000 more years since Joshua's day. We might say his credit score is astronomical. His credit score is 1,000 points, higher than possible. And so ask, uh, living by faith is a big request of us, and yet we can see that he has a reliable track record, that he has good credit, that we can trust him. God provides what he promises. And so Israel can go and live by faith, inheriting the land that Joshua allots to them, because God has promised to drive out the people before him. And in the New Testament, and really throughout his word, we see that God promises also to drive sin and to drive uh, destructive patterns of behavior out of us. It might feel like a massive battle, almost unwinnable. And yet if we live dependent on God's promises in faith, we can trust him. Now I want to focus at the end here on one last theme. Looking at verses 14 and 33, let's focus for a minute on the Levites. In verse 14, we're told that the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave no inheritance. The offerings by fire to the Lord God of Israel are their inheritance, as God said to them. The priests represent all the tribes of Israel. And so they're mentioned here with the eastern land. They represent the eastern tribes as well. The priests lead all the tribes in worship. And so the priests will be given, or the Levites will be given some cities in the east as well as the west. And yet the text makes clear that they were not given any land inheritance as their own. Rather, their portion of the inheritance comes from the offering by fire. When people give sacrifices, that's where, and, and offerings, grain offerings, that's where the priests and the Levites get their food from, their meat and their grain. That's where they even, we were reading this week with the kids in Leviticus, that's where they get their skins from. The, they get skins from certain offerings that they can use then for cloaks and tents and whatever else they needed to use skins for. Their portion comes from the sacrifices. But notice how verse 33 shortens this in this profound little phrase. To the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance, just as he said to them. Not his offerings. The Lord himself is their inheritance. The Lord himself is their portion. I want to suggest that the Levites here provide for us an image of the life of faith. 
the life of faith that all God's people are called to live, the Christian life. After all, don't we sing in amazing grace, the Lord my portion shall be? We have all kinds of desires, good desires. Some of you are desiring land, just like the Israelites were, or a new house. That's a good thing, to desire land to work and to develop and to live on. That's a good thing. Some of you are desiring promotions in your job, to advance in your careers, to make new breakthroughs in whatever field you're working in. Those are good things as well. God calls us to work in the world. Some of you perhaps desire uh, to be married or to have children, and those are good desires. These are all good things. But if we let those be our ultimate desire, they will never satisfy. Look at Revelation chapter 22, verse 4. In Revelation 22, we have a vision of the end of all things. We're told in verse 3, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in the new creation, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their forehead. This is the goal. This is the promised inheritance that the Spirit is a guarantee of. The goal of the Christian life is to worship our Lord, the Lamb, and God, and to see his face. This is our inheritance, to see God. This is what we will possess. We will possess God himself. We will see him. In Christian tradition, this is called the beatific vision, that one day we will see God himself and that we're transformed even in that vision of him. God gives all sorts of good things to his people. After all, the book of Joshua is about God giving his people land. And God provides housing and, and good temporal goods for his people now. But if you are not satisfied with this, with our true inheritance, God himself, if you're not satisfied with seeing him, nothing else will satisfy. If you're not satisfied with God himself, then even if you get the promotion you long for, even if you get a new house that you hope for, even if you get your perfect dream piece of property, it won't satisfy. But on the other hand, if you are satisfied with this, with having God himself as your inheritance, as your promised possession that one day you will have, that you will see him face to face, if you are satisfied with the little glimpses of God that we get here and now, you can be happy with your lot in life. Whatever situation you find yourselves in. Some Israelites got uh, uh, grange land. Others got rich river valleys. Some got coastal plains. Apart from God, they would say, well, I wish I got that land over there. I'd rather be up in Lebanon. I'd rather be down here in the hill country. But with God, whatever land they're given, they can be satisfied. They can learn to live it, trusting his promises, or work that land, trusting his promises. And so too for us, if we are satisfied with this, with God himself as our inheritance, we can find contentment in whatever situation we find ourselves in. Let us pray. Gracious God, you have called us to live by faith. You have a proven track record, and you've given us your spirit as the guarantee 
that one day we will inherit eternal life with you. That one day we will see you face to face and worship you. Lord, teach us contentment now. We have the promised inheritance that is you yourself. And so teach us to find contentment and happiness in whatever lot we find ourselves now, in whatever context we find ourselves now. Help us, Lord, like Joshua and Israel, to be wise, adapting to new situations. And yet help us never to lose track of this, that our goal is to see you. Amen. Here you go.